this is exactly what he said to me. Mind you, he knows I'm a doctor. Okay. This is how he talked, he talked to me. He's like, uh, well, let's do one cycle. If you get pregnant, then cool. Right. Looks good. Right. We'll move forward. If you don't get pregnant, then we just figure out what the problem is and we just exchange it. So it's either going to be your ovaries, your uterus or his sperm. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard. Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years. And she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. Today, we get to talk about a topic with a very special guest, Fertility Journeys for Women with Demanding Careers. Every fertility journey is a process of getting to know ourselves, a process where new fears, doubts, and unknowns pop up that we didn't know we had until now. The stress of wanting to grow a family while maintaining a career can add to the difficulty. The desire to build our family is there no matter our job, our gender identity, our economic status, or our fertility status. Our guest today has shared her IVF journey with the world in the hopes that others will see it as a normal and know that they are not alone in this. Annually, 1% to 2% of all U.S. births are via IVF, and 33% of American adults report that they or someone they know has used some type of fertility treatment to have a baby, according to a Pew Research Center survey. Let's also remind ourselves more than 55,000 women give birth to a baby conceived through assisted reproductive technologies every year. About 7.3 million women of childbearing age in the U.S. have used fertility treatments to get pregnant. And IVF is one of the most popular routes. Staggering numbers, huh? No woman is alone in this. That's right. There are millions of us. Our guest today is here to remind us of that and to help us navigate the process as well as life, career, caring for small children during what is likely the most emotional time in our life. Dr. Hala Sabri is a board-certified emergency medicine physician, the founder of Physician Moms Group, and a supermom of five with two sets of twins. Lord help this woman. Being a mother of five has given Hala a unique expertise and skill set to help other parents in the medical field. After years of infertility, she found that balancing motherhood and a career in medicine was challenging. She frequently fought through fear, negative self-talk, and a recurring desire to quit her job in medicine. And she knew other mothers and physicians must have experienced the same struggles. She attributes having a solid support system and life coaching in helping her manage her thoughts and reaffirm her why. Welcome, Hala. Very excited to speak on a topic that so many women need support around, managing your professional life while being in an infertility patient. Um, I think we need to know we're not alone as professional women who are trying to manage all the things. In addition to that, learning that a fertility journey is one we will need to take adds an incredible layer of doubt, fear, unknown into the mix. So thank you for being here and sharing your story of strength with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I was so excited to get the invite. So I'm excited to share my story. And if it inspires anyone else or gives anyone support, then I think that all of that rough patch I went through is worth it. Yes, yes. Well, I agree. And and I really do feel too that the more others hear that there's others going through their same path, that it would give them more um 
I think just, I think it's inspiration and like more motivation, yes. like just seeing somebody else that looks like you doing it. I think it's funny because we're in a, um, we're in a society where now, I mean, I started my IVF uh, treatments, like, I don't know what, 13 years ago or something. So let's paint the picture of what that looked like. Mm-hmm. So nobody was talking about infertility. Mm-hmm. In fact, like you kind of hit it, like all these celebrities were coming out with twins and they were saying, oh, it's because I'm older and you ovulate more. And I mean, is there some medical factor that, yeah. But I think it's kind of a little bit of a coincidence. I'm not I'm not calling them liars, but I think that when we live in a world that infertility points the finger of blame on the woman, like nobody wants to be out there saying that something is wrong with you, especially when it's so intimately connected to your sexuality. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. so when you talk about like, oh, we've been trying, you know, that there's a lot of information you're giving someone, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're having sex, like all these other things. Right. And then, you know, I don't know. So I think it's just really difficult. And so nobody was really talking about it at all, including like, you know, my even circle of friends, like nobody was really talking about it. And so, um, and then the only people that were talking about it at that time were like on the housewife shows. Mm. Right. So what's the message that gives us? Well, you, it's, you know, infertility is for the rich and famous, for the rich and the beautiful, yep. for the model-esque type. I mean, no hate to any of those housewives because they're all amazing and they work really hard. But that, that, the way that that franchise displays these women, you know, these people just have first world problems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's when, that's when I started my journey. And so I did it very quietly, very much in solitude, very lonely. I, I had a cousin who went through IVF. So I thought that she would be a great resource for me. But it turns out that I didn't realize that there's this like, almost like maybe a survivor's guilt or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what happens after you're done with that journey that sometimes you just actually don't want to talk about it. I mean, clearly not your guests or the people who are listening to this, but um, but I think that there's a segment of people who go through IVF that it's so painful for them that they kind of just decide that they're going to erase it. And that's totally okay, right? So that's how my cousin was. And so I was really super alone. And um, yeah, and so I didn't have anyone to talk to. So the fact that we're talking about this and talking about how it affected me, not only as a patient, but also professionally, um, I'm an emergency medicine physician so, I mean, do I deliver babies? Yeah. I mean, it, it just happens. It happens a few times a year, um, usually like in a car or an elevator, um, not in a controlled <laughs> setting. Yeah. Um, am I diagnosing miscarriages and seeing pregnancy emergencies? Yes. Every single shift. Mm. Um, and it's really hard, especially when, you know, those patients, you know, they don't know what's going on with your life. And honestly, what's going on in my life is uh, not important because I am not the patient. So, you know, I remember clearly there was this one patient that I had and I was struggling with IVF. I had just come off of a loss and she had showed up and she was like, I think I have a stomach bug and I've been vomiting. And so part of our protocol, you know, she's this young, you know, reproductive age woman. I do a pregnancy test and she's positive for pregnancy. And she was complaining of some belly pain. So I want to make sure she doesn't have an ectopic pregnancy. So for those of you listening that don't know what that is, it's when you have a pregnancy that's not in your uterus. And so I went ahead and did an ultrasound and guess what? She was pregnant with twins. Yeah. So I'm sitting there like just the amount of jealousy and maybe envy, Mm -hmm. right? So I was like, oh my gosh. So I go and I tell her, you know, Hey, you're pregnant with twins. And you know, for someone who is not trying to get pregnant, that may not be good news. For anyone listening, that may be ecstatic news. So mm-hmm. exciting. Mm-hmm. She was not happy. She's like, hey, can you give me the details of the nearest abortion clinic? Oh my God. Right. And so um, anyhow, I don't know actually what happened with her. 
Um, I have no idea. Um, and I am super pro-choice. Um, I think people should have the right to choose to do IVF. I think IVF should be accessible for everyone. I also think they should have a chance and they should have complete control over their, yep. their body with any kind of reproductive rights. That's my yep. own personal choice, yep. my, 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 my stance on it. Yep. Agreed. So no judgment, but I think, um, it's hard. It's hard to go home yes. after that. And you, yes. and you cry, you're crying the whole way home. You're like, damn. Yeah. And here I am on my seventh IVF, you know, mm. like, but how many IVF cycles yeah. have you done? So I did eight fresh cycles and I have done 11 transfers. So I was the patient. If anyone is listening, I'm going to be super honest. I started this process. I started trying to get pregnant when I was 29 years old. Did not happen. Then I started IVF uh, right when I was just after turning 30. Okay. I was told I was going to be the easiest case ever. Mm. Okay. Cause they're like, well, your, your FSH is slightly high. It was 8.5. You know, the cutoff is eight. And for those of you listening that know your FSH, you, you're probably laughing at this because that's not really that bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, maybe your husband's sperm counts a little bit low, you know, which was a whole nother blow to my husband. He's like, what? I'm the problem. But then he went to urologists and they're, they repeated the sample. And they're like, no, actually you're fine. So I, I fell in the bucket of unexplained infertility, but I'll tell you that I think, you know, towards the end, I had diminished ovarian reserve. So I don't know if that was my diagnosis at the beginning, or maybe I just got older through IVF and that's what I ended up having. But my first cycle, I made three embryos and they all were really crappy, like just really, like really bad, you know, uh, grades. And they're like, well, we don't even want to freeze them because we don't know if they'll make the thaw. So they transfer them and I don't get pregnant. And mind you, this is very, you have to remember, this is like 10 years ago mm-hmm. or more than that. So mm-hmm. this is a little bit different than mm-hmm. what it is now. So these are, there's a lot of ethics now, right? Yes. yes. So yes. I had multiple transfers and yeah. so I would do, I did another cycle and my doctor was like, Hey, let's just up the medication. Maybe you need more of a, a higher dose. I did that. Did not work. I made four embryos then, and, and it didn't result in a pregnancy. Next time, same thing, higher the dose, same outcome. Um, so the, the fifth, the fifth cycle, I got pregnant, super ecstatic, same doctor. And then I miscarried at five weeks and three days. Mm. And that's a trip being an ER doctor, going to the ER for a miscarriage, something I diagnose very regularly. It's made me a better doctor. I will tell you that much. Yeah. Um, I remember that whole encounter. Uh, I actually now work at that hospital, which is so odd. <laughs> and so, um, and the doctor who treated me, he has no idea. You know, he doesn't remember, but I remember. And yeah. so, um, so yeah, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, and so then I decided to switch clinics. I was like, why am I being so loyal mm. to this one clinic? So I, so I ended up, you know, this is before Facebook groups, you guys. So I'm like totally dating myself, but they had this thing called uh, fertilitycommunity.com or, or yes. something like that. And yes. you remember that? Yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. So I was on there and I was always, I don't know if you remember this. There's all these different threads. And you can Mm -hmm. see how many people have responded Uh, to the thread. Yes. And how many people were in kind of like in the group or something or Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. Yeah. Like how many people are just active in that group, you know, and you can, you can start a thread on anything. So there was always on, there was another fertility like site like that. Um, But anyways, there was always one thread that Mm -hmm. was like popping. It was Mm -hmm. like, there's so many people on there, like hundreds of people. And it was, it was always called CCRM girls. And I was like, what the hell is this? I go on there and 
this is back in the day where on your signature line, you would put like all of your stats, like my FSH is this, my AFC is this, um, mm-hmm. I'm this age, this is mm-hmm. how many cycles I've had, this is how many times I've been pregnant, like all these things, right? Like you have like this, like almost like a resume, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I went down and I was shocked. I was shocked, Eloise, like these women were older than me. I was like 30, what, 31 at the time, right? These women were 40 plus. They had worse stats than I did. Like horrible things, horrible diagnoses that like, you know, I just couldn't fathom, right? Um, and they're getting pregnant. They're getting pregnant with single twins, twins, you know? Like they're just like popping them out, like first time. I was like, what is going on with this place? So I researched this place and I'm like, okay, it's in Colorado. I live in California. Uh-huh. I'm, um, so yes, I am a doctor. I told you guys that, but I, at this point I had just graduated medical school. So I was in residency. So for those of you that don't know anything about training and of being a doctor, you have to go through anywhere between three to seven plus years of training after you're done with school. And that training is not like very like comfortable to do family planning. Like mm. believe me, these men that run these, and, and I say men purposely because women are not running you know, um, healthcare, yeah, at all. Mm-hmm. They um, they don't want you pregnant. They want yeah. you working. Yeah. You have to work like 80 hours a week, right? Like if you, they don't have time for you to get pregnant and have to go on bed rest and all this other stuff. So I, you know, I was already sneaking around and, you know, switching shifts with people and like, you know, on the down low and, hey, like, you know, can you help me? I don't even know when my retrieval is because it all depends on my lab work. And, you know, somehow I was going through the process and getting it done, you know, not telling my, um, my actual program director, but anyways, I moved forward and I'm like looking at this and I'm like, well, there's no way I can go to Colorado. Like I can't fly out there. I don't have a flexible situation right now. We're also in debt. We're putting all of this on credit card, you guys. And so the idea of going to Colorado and looking at the prices there, I was like, there's no way, there's no way. So I instead did, um, something different. So I looked at the, I was like, I want to know why, why do they have such a success rate? So I started researching the, the founder of the clinic. Um, there's two founders, um, doctor, I do not work with the clinic. I am, I'm not endorsed by the clinic. I just want to let you guys know. So I just really have a lot of love and um, appreciation for them. Um, but it was Dr. Eric Surrey and Dr. Schoolcraft. Yeah. Bill Schoolcraft. Schoolcraft. And so I looked them up and I'm like, I don't understand what, you know, they, they trained at UCLA. I looked up their I looked up their class and I found that there was another guy, another, another, um, Surrey. So Eric has a brother named Mark and Mark's in LA. And I'm like, well, if they all train together, why not just go to Mark? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, I say Mark, like, like we're friends, but we're not friends. <laughs> so I, um, so I go and I see him and he's brilliant. You guys, he's such a scientist. So brilliant. So awesome. I go to him and I, and I, I fall in love, you know, because I think that's what happens. Like we fall in love with the clinic. We fall in love with the doctor. And I mean, it's, it's such an intimate time. Like, you know, they're making a baby with you. Right. Mm-hmm. So I go in there and I, and I see him and I, and I come out, my husband's like, yeah, we could tell the difference between this doctor and the last doctor. This guy's kind of a scientist more than the other guy. That's his professional, you know, kind of take on it. So I'm, he's not a doctor, mind you. So, um, so we go and we do a cycle and I was like, I'm only going to commit to two cycles, like one to try it out to, to, you know, to figure out our learnings from the first one. If I don't get pregnant, I don't get pregnant. And so, um, we got pregnant the second time. Again, I miscarried at five weeks, three days, but at least I felt like my egg quality was a little bit better. They started decreasing my doses of my medication, whatever, but I left there without a baby. Mm. And, um, I told him, I was like, you know, I don't, I love you, but I think we have to break up. Like, because I told myself I'm only going to do two cycles. I really want to go to CCRM. 
I know that that's where your brother works. And he's like, yeah, we know each other very well. Obviously, um, we all went to school together. We went to residency. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I stalk you. And, um, <laughs> and so then he's like, um, yeah, you know, if, when you go, you know, let me know. I'll put in, you know, I'll let them know. Like, I'll, I'll give them a call. And then I was like, okay, well, here I am. $92,000 in debt. Mm. Yeah. And then seeing the price tag, you know, of CCRM, which at that time, I don't know what it is now, but I think it was like 27,000 at that time. And I was like, I don't know. I just finished residency, you know, so now I'm making real money. Right. But I'm like, I got to pay, you know, basically my school loan off mm-hmm. and I have to pay my fertility loan. Like this mm-hmm. is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was at. And I think that's why I like speaking about the honesty of going through this as a professional, because we don't go, I mean, it doesn't matter what your profession is you don't go through this without it affecting all parts of your life, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the reality. And that's why I tell you how much debt I was in and I, and I'm really honest. Mm -hmm. Well, that, and it's also where, you know, we typically will go into detail about somebody's story and what they endured and then the happy ending. Right. But a lot of times we don't really talk about the in-between and all of the mess and all of the emotions. And like you said, the jealousy and the envy of this other woman. I mean, and so many people experience it. It's just like, well, you don't want to share that with anybody because you don't, you know, you don't want to feel that way, Mm -hmm. but it's just nature. It's just, you know, it's not, sometimes you can't even control that you're feeling that way. And sometimes you don't even recognize that you're feeling that way until, you know, you jolt back and it's like, oh God, yeah, no, what am I thinking? So, I, I mean, I can definitely understand why clearly, right? So, so how did it end up then that you have five young ones and two sets of twins? No, I know. Um, I do want to make a comment though, on the idea of feelings like jealousy, envy, happiness, gratitude. Okay. All of these things are feelings. Yep. That's it. Yep. You know, yep. why, why do we put certain weight on happy versus mm-hmm. sad or, mm-hmm. you know, excitement versus jealousy, right? Like, why do we have shame around feeling these negative thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Because life truly is, you know, 50, 50, like yeah. we only know sadness because we've experienced it. We've experienced happiness. So right. to anybody listening to this, it's okay to be jealous mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it's okay to feel envy. It's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is the difference between jealousy and envy? Well, there's a lot of different definitions out there, but jealousy, I mean, what I like to think it is, is wanting something that somebody else has. Mm-hmm. I think envy is like that step further where you want what somebody else has so much that you're willing to ruin it. So neither one of you can have it. Mm. And I think that these are natural feelings, like no shame. I'm telling you, I've been jealous. I've been envious, right? Not even just in the IVF thing. I've been jealous of oh, someone God, yeah. on social media. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh man, your Instagram's like, you know, awesome. Like you're mm-hmm. so gorgeous. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it is normal. This comparing thing is normal, but it's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to turn it into inspiration? You know, like, hey, like I would love one day, you know, to, to be a mom. Let me figure out all the ways I could be a mom because me expending that energy on hating on this woman is not going to get me there. Right. I promise you. Yeah. Right. Like that's not gonna make me pregnant. So, um, so I think it's okay to feel your feelings, but you have to feel your feelings or else what you've done is you basically build this, this resentment and this resistance that snaps one day, 
you know, and, and, it, and it presents in a lot of different ways. It presents as breaking off friendships. It presents as, you know, just lashing out at people no, no, for no reason, you know, turning to food, like all these things that we do to avoid feeling the negative feelings. And I think to that, I, I, I encourage every single person to know that it's normal and to allow you, allow yourself to say like, yeah, of course I'm jealous. Mm-hmm. I want that. Mm-hmm. Right. Let yourself feel jealous for the 45 seconds that you're going to feel it. And then be like, all right, now I'm ready to move on, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm ready to, to focus back on myself, right? And, mm-hmm. and stop giving my focus to this other person. But anyways, so I don't, I, I'm saying this with, uh, I did not have that clear of a head when I was going through this. I'm just saying this as somebody who's now like a Monday morning quarterback looking back and saying, I should have done this and that. Right. But yeah, so um, so what happened? So I ended up, uh, my husband and I were like, you know, we really want to go to CCRM, but financially we didn't really think it can work out. Um, and that sounds insane because I'm a doctor making more than enough money. My, my husband's an aerospace engineer and, you know, he makes six figures. So like, that's crazy, right? We also had a house note and car and, and all this other stuff, right? So we decided that, you know, we're going to hunker down and we were going to pay off our loans. That's, a, that's just a decision that we made. Every I'm not giving financial advice here. I'm just saying this is what worked for us. We literally put our head down and he um, started taking every opportunity for, you know, um, for overtime and he would get these stipends for doing traveling. And he was like, sign me up for all the things, you know? So he was able to make a little bit more money. I started working extra. I was working at like two or three different hospitals. I started picking up more shifts and a normal ER doctor works about 15 days a month, some 12 to 15 days a month. Um, and I was working 23. So that just gives you some idea of how much I was working. I was working like basically almost double time. Um, and we were able to pay down our debt, uh, with the the ninety two thousand um, in eight months, we're able to pay it down to a por- a portion where we paid off half of it, and then we had the cash to mm-hmm. you know to to pay for CCRM. So I understand that I'm in a very privileged space to be able to double triple my income in that way. Now, and then there there there's different ways I would have done it. Now there is resources that like, for example, working at Starbucks or one of the organizations that pay for IVF, I probably would have just hop- hopped on board for that. Mm-hmm they have great benefits. There's a lot more companies that are coming out with benefits like that. So I would look into that. I would have looked into moving to a mandated state, meaning a state that mandates insurance covers up to three cycles. We were, we really had a lot of obstacles in our way thinking that we couldn't move. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. We could have done all of those things. And we, we didn't because we were so overwhelmed with choices and we just saw this number on our credit card statement and we were just freaking the F out, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so we did it that way. I think there's a lot of smarter ways to do it, but that's not what we did. We went out to CCRM. I did my consult there. Um, I decided to go out there myself. I wanted to see it. I was like, if I'm going to put the amount of money that I could use to buy, to buy a new car into mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to, I want to go see it. And I went and I saw it and I thought the place was beautiful. It was like the Disneyland of IVF. and. Um, it is so well run. And I'm saying this as a physician that understands the complexities of running, you know, a, a um, clinic of some, a, or a hospital or anything. But I remember sitting down with Schoolcraft and I showed him all my paperwork and I was like, what do you think? You know? And I think um, like many IVF patients, like you kind of want there something to be wrong because yeah. then you could focus on the solution to that problem. Right. Yeah. Right. And he was like, I don't know. I have no idea why you're not pregnant. On paper, you look like you're super easy. But clearly you're not. Mm. And I would probably do the same protocol that Mark did, you know, but we have a different lab and that's what I think differentiates us. And also something I didn't say earlier, 
is when I was researching them and stalking them, I started looking at like reproductive endocrinology conferences Mm -hmm. and looking at who they pick as keynotes and what are the topics of what they're presenting. And I started to notice a trend that Schoolcraft and Surrey were very highly sought after and were often presenting new data, new information that was patented to them and now is releasing off of patent. And I started realizing that they're kind of really the industry leaders at that time. I don't know what it's like now. Mm-hmm. And so, so I was like, you know, I think that there's a lot that they have going on, which are, you know, proprietary and they're not really talking about it. And I could really respect that as a fellow physician, scientist and business, you know, mm-hmm. um, business owner. So, um, so I said, you know what, this is my Hail Mary. I'm going to do it. So we did. And we did one cycle. He said, listen, let me, let me just do one cycle. And I just hope you get pregnant. But if you don't get pregnant, <laughs> this is exactly what he said to me. Mind you, he knows I'm a doctor. Okay. This is how he talked. He talked to me. He's like, uh, well, let's do one cycle. And if you get pregnant, then cool. Right. Looks good. Right. We'll move forward. If you don't get pregnant, then we just figure out what the problem is and we just exchange it. So it's either going to be your ovaries, your uterus or his sperm. And I was like, yes, this is a very simplistic way of describing it. (laughs) But I was like, damn, I paid how much to come here and hear that? Um, I remember leaving and calling my mom and complaining. And I was like, what I heard him say is I will not be able to carry my baby or use my own eggs, Mm. which now, again, Monday morning quarterback, I don't think is a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ways to grow your family. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in that like IVF haze, yeah. you know, you want yeah. it the certain way that you want it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So my mom's like, well, you went there for answers. You didn't go there for a cheerleader. That's going to just blow smoke up your ass, you know? Mm. Um, sorry if I just, no, I don't know. You're good. Person. Okay. You're good. Um, yeah. I'm like, you can edit it that out. <laughs> so, um, or if you want more of that, you definitely could. <laughs> reach out to me. I I will give you more of that. No. So, so yeah, so I decided to do it and we went through one cycle and long story short, we got pregnant. We got pregnant with twins actually. And, um, we did not have twins from that pregnancy. We ended up losing one at eight and a half weeks, which was a real mind game, Mm. you know, but I ended up having that, that baby and she is now eight and a half and talks back to me Mm -hmm. and awesome. Um, (laughs) She's eight and a half going on 20. She's so, I love her. She's like my mini me. Um, And then I hit a lot of, you think my life is like better by now, right? So basically what happens after I have a baby, um, for those of you listening that work in a very unforgiving industry or a male dominated industry, what happened was, you know, I was still focused on my career this whole time. Yes, I was busting my butt. Yes, I was making tons of money. Yes, my priority was becoming a mom. I not only have my doctorate, but I have my MBA. And I went to medical school with the sole intention that I would go into management to really advocate for doctors. Um, because doctors, um, for those of you that know anything about healthcare, doctors really are a marginalized population in a way mm-hmm. because nobody's really looking out for their best interests. And there's a lot of unethical treatment of physicians. There's a really high rate of suicide of physicians. Uh, physicians are leaving the industry. There's a projected um, 122,000 deficit of physicians that are expected in the next 10 years. Although I think that we're feeling it now. Um, so with that said, I was already doing a lot of management type of stuff. I was a director at work and I was or I was, I was not a director at work yet. I was, um, I, w- I was doing all the things to become a director. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. There was a position that opened for a directorship when I was on maternity leave with my daughter. So I worked until I was 39. I worked up until 
a week before I had her, then I had her and then I went back four weeks later. So, and I had a C-section. So that's kind of insane in itself. But the reason why I did that is I was too scared to rock the boat. So I did this all silently. Never, I mean, I was, I started telling people I did IVF after I got pregnant, but nobody ever knew, you know, I just stacked my shifts in a different way. I was able to move things around. I did this like gymnastics of, you know, scheduling, did that, took a very short maternity leave because I don't want the men to notice I'm gone. Don't want to cause any problems. I'm the only female that's working there. There's one other female, but she's like not interested in having a kid at that time. She's not, you know, married or anything like that, nothing. So anyways, that happened. And while I was on maternity leave, still answering emails through my phone, right? Like I found out that a directorship opened and then they gave it to a man that was my junior that I recruited to our team. And when I asked why, the answer I was told was, well, you just had a baby and I thought you wanted to be a good mom. Mm. Yes, highly illegal. But that's what he thought. And he really came from like a, like a protection, a place of protection. Like, like, I don't want you to like be away from your child. Right. I know. I know. And to that, I, he had a young girl at that time. I mean, he, he still has that daughter um, and he adores that daughter. He's such a good dad. He really is. And the story ends well. Like we're, we're still really good friends. I end up getting the directorship later. It's all good. And mm-hmm. he has way better business practice, management practice. Like we both learned. It was great. True. Okay. But, um, but I said to him, I was like, so what? Are you just telling me that you're just deciding to be a really shitty dad mm-hmm. because you're a director? Like, I don't know. I guess that's mm-hmm. what you're telling me. And then he knew immediately that it was wrong and this and that. But anyways, um, so at, in that moment, I was like, I think that the universe is telling me that I need to go have more kids because apparently that's what I'm good at. I'm not good at this whole doctor thing, right? And so I go call the clinic like when my daughter is like two months or three months old, I was like, Hey, I'm ready to go back to do more retreat, more. Uh, I, I had made, um, Oh, sorry. I forgot to mention this part. So I did the one cycle, my FSH, just for people that want to hear this, I was, um, 12 and a half, uh, my antral follicle count. So how many follicles I had on my day five, I believe of my cycle was nine mm. of the cycle before. And then, um, and my, my AMH was 0.2, which you really can't get lower than that. Right. Ooh. Yeah. So, and I'm 33 at this point. So, um, that's what I was dealing with. So I ended up going through the process and I made six, I made seven day five embryos. One of them was abnormal. So I had six to play with. I transferred two, had one kid. So I had four left. Yeah. So I went back and I was like, I'm ready. I don't want my uterus to forget this whole pregnancy thing. Let's go. Come on, let's go. (laughs) And for those listening, a uterus, like the uterus does not have like memory cells. Okay. So that is not a thing, but I convinced myself in that moment. So then I was like, okay, fine. I go back. We had this whole discussion. Do I transfer one or two? Cause I've already had a pregnancy, but we didn't know if it was like a fluke and I've had eight, seven failures, this and that. We decided to transfer two. I get pregnant with twins again. Mm. And I'm like, you know what? Don't get excited, Hala. One of them's not going to make it. You're going to have one kid. And he, and Schoolcraft said, to, yeah, we, we, we transferred to you for the, for you to have one kid. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we know that we know yeah. that it's not going to work out all that, like all that way. And, um, and they don't want you to have twins because there's higher risk of right. pregnancy. Oh my gosh. It's, it's a really high risk. And I was really lucky, but I got pregnant with twins and I ended up delivering them at 34 weeks in one day, hit a lot more discrimination in the workplace, surprisingly by my nurses and by the patients, not really by my boss anymore. Lots of people going like, I don't know if I really want you to treat me because you're pregnant. And I was like, 
Okay, well, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah, lots of that. A lot of, you know, complaining because I waddle a little bit slower now. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not seeing patients as fast as I was when I didn't have two growing human beings in my belly. Right. And then so you I, and, did this twice with twins. Yeah, yeah, I did it twice. And then this, the second pregnancy though, is what broke me. I was like, I can't, I don't know how I can continue working and be a mom. There's no way. And mm-hmm. so that's when I felt the loneliest, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started looking on Facebook groups to see if there was any like doctor mom groups and there really wasn't. So I made my own. Mm-hmm. So that now is an international organization of over 116,000 people. Mm-hmm. So that kept me really busy. I made that I made that group when I was 33 weeks pregnant with my first set of twins. And then um, I was overwhelmed, you guys. I was like, I had three kids. I was feeling like I was drowning. Life got really complicated. I thought it was complicated before, but I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. I didn't really have any bad complications. My babies were good weights. They only stayed in the NICU for a week to feed and grow. Like no, no complaints there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I had that dilemma of what do I do with the other two embryos? Mm. Yeah. So and that's where you went and transfer those two and those now are your next set of twins. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I actually had a, a, a person in my group in my mom group, she was driving and got into a really bad car accident, not her fault. And she had three kids, five, three, and one, and two of them passed away in the car accident. Oh my God. Yeah. And it deeply, deeply affected me. And every June, this happened in July. And every June I would get the, the bill to pay for the storage fee. Yeah. You know, so every June I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should like, you know, store them or, you know, I, I there's no yeah. way I want other kids. I, yeah. I gave away all my baby stuff. Like I was done. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, this woman has this accident and I'm like, I don't know. We start talking about it. And I was like, you know, what if we get no accident? He's, my husband's like, you don't just replace your children. I'm like, I know, but still like, yeah. um, I mean, it's not like we just can go get pregnant, you know? Uh, we have these two embryos. And so long story short, we go and we transfer them. And I remember thinking on that table, I thought back to that woman mm-hmm. that I diagnosed with twins and I immediately apologized to her in my brain for ever judging her <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it's hard. And I remember thinking on that table, like, I don't think I want to be pregnant, but now it's too late. Now I'm like committed right. to this. Right. They're getting the, you know, the whole transfer tube out and this other yeah. stuff, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. I mean, what are the chances that I'm actually going to get pregnant? I mean, look, I came up with set, like, these are just flukes. I just got pregnant. Like I was lucky. Mm-hmm. And then I found out, you know, I was pregnant and then found out I was pregnant with twins and I was really depressed. I was depressed for five months and wow. trying, trying to keep my job, you know, now I'm a director, you guys, this, th- that all happened. Now I'm leading this international organization. Mm. I'm a internet influencer, basically mm. trying to make it look like Hey, this is this is super easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we all know that that's not. It is not. That is definitely not, especially in, in when you're dealing with infertility and the challenges that you face. How how can women in busy careers better navigate this process from your perspective and your personal experience? Because obviously, you have enough of it. So, uh, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, one is try to find a community of people that you can reach out to, um, you know, and now there's so many Facebook groups and, um, other, and uh, other platforms that have groups that literally there's a group for everything. And if you don't find a group that's supportive of your needs, like make it, you know, because you're not the only one we convince ourselves that we're the only one going through the process. But I tell you, like, you're not, 
you know, I convinced myself I was the only one going through IVF. That's a doctor. I was the only one that was struggling financially. I was living paycheck to paycheck. Like who the hell, what kind of doctor loves, lives paycheck to paycheck? Well, surprise, most of them, mm-hmm. you know, did not know that until I started talking to them. And so reach out to a community of people and make a community, you know, and don't take things so personally. I mean, I remember um, my initial community before the one that I made, I had a really good friend at work. She was a nurse and she was going through IVF at the same time. So we became like IVF best friends. And there was my photographer from my wedding. His wife was going through it. They were going through IVF. And so I was best friends with her. Well, guess what? She got pregnant first, the photographer's wife. She got pregnant at CCRM. She went first. And then I was like, oh, well, she got pregnant. I maybe Mm -hmm. can too. Mm -hmm. Um, But then after she got pregnant, like she really distanced herself from me. And I don't know if like she was given off, I was given off vibes of jealousy. I don't think so. I was truly, truly happy for her. But I remember feeling really like, almost like, and I felt the same with my cousin, like, you know, kind of like, is this like a survivor's guilt thing? Like you don't Mm want to revisit it. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing I learned through that is not to take that personally. Like Mm -hmm. just to remember, um, someone told me this once and it's always stuck with me. Life, like with friendships is like a train. And if you know anything about trains, they have a starting point and they have an end point. And then when they're at the end, they stop and then they go back to the starting point, right? There's no drama. They don't, they don't go on their path and they stop at a stop and some people get off and some people get on and there's no drama. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this person got off, right? No, there's no drama because the train is going to the end of the tracks. Mm -hmm. And even if that train is riding solo, there is nobody on that train, it is still going to ride to the end of the tracks and it's mm-hmm. not going to have drama about it. And if you can imagine your friendships like that, you just know that everybody was on there for whatever stop that you needed. Yep. They got what they needed. You got what you needed. And that's okay. Not everybody has like these friends long-term until the end of life, right? Right. Um, just every stop gives a new opportunity. Um, so I wish I would have like not been so uh, sensitive and then realize that there's so many different people at different parts. Like for example... For those of you that are going through IVF and you already have a child, that is really isolating because when you're in a group with people who don't have any children, there's that weird dynamic like, well, you should be happy that you at least have one. Mm. Well, no, you should be able to have whatever you want. You want one, you want five, you want two. It doesn't really matter, right? Like secondary infertility, I think really sucks because you have already, I think when you haven't had a baby, you don't even know what you're missing. Like it's, you think you know what you're missing because you've dreamt of this life of having this baby, right? That is very painful. Then you have a baby, you get to experience that. And then say you can't have any more. Now you're mourning the loss of what you already have experienced, right? So mm. I, I don't think anyone is harder or better or worse. Just to go to show that I think that those two groups of people don't understand one another mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So I think um, if you take the train analogy, you know, it's okay. Maybe you're just on a different train. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't really matter. So my advice to you is find a community, realize that that community is going to be serving you for whatever time that you want. And then there's no drama. Yeah. You just move on to another other community or you make your own. Yeah. Yeah. So you speak about legacy and yours yeah. is to create more women leaders in male dominated fields. Yeah. Um, and I am supporting women leaders who are creating impact and societal change, furthering their legacies. What does legacy mean to you and how does it relate to each woman's unique fertility journey? Yeah, I think legacy, it's funny. I, when I started doing a lot more personal growth in the last like five years, I kind of started coming back towards like legacy icon. These strong words that I just had an aversion to, like I felt like it was too big for me. Mm. And I was like, why is it too big for me? 
because we're all leaving a legacy. Every single one of you listening, you, Eloise, myself, we're all going to leave a legacy because what is a legacy? It's what you leave behind after you're gone, right? right? Or, and you get to enjoy while you, while you're alive too. It's not just after you're gone. It's what you're Mm -hmm. actually creating. It's like Mm -hmm. your impact on the world, right? So we're all doing that. I mean, if you don't believe me, read an obituary, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like even like the quote unquote worst person in the world, like think about them. The obituary still makes them seem like the most amazing person, right? It's like, oh, they're not going to be like, oh, this person was like an asshole and like, you know, Mm -hmm. was like talk shit about this person. This No, they're not. They're going to be like, oh, he was a loving father and this and that, right? Right. So you're going to leave a legacy, right? And so for me, um, I started getting involved with organizations uh, through my international organization. I started getting involved with organizations that really focus on women and equity for women. And one of them is the National Women History Museum. And one of the things that I learned through the National Women History Museum is like, why do we have to have a National Women History Museum? Well, I will tell you. Um, first of all, did you know that there is not one that's actually dedicated to women? We have one to like M&Ms, the candy. We have one to pineapples, right? We have one for like, you know, what? rock music, right? We have everything. But, yeah. but if women are included in those museums, it's like a corner of the museum in the back, right? And there really isn't anything that's really dedicated to women and their contribution and impact to society. And why is that important? Well, when we're reading in history books, right? Who is displayed in these history books? Men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not learning about women and it's not even just men, it's white men. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and what happens is it tells us, it gives us this socialized message that we are just not that important. Yeah. And if you don't think you think that way, think back to the story I just told you about when my boss told me I should be a better mom. And I decided that actually, yes, I probably would be a better mom than a doctor. I convinced myself someone who has way too much schooling behind her name raised as a, by a feminist dad, right? Never thought I was less than a man until that moment when I was, when it really mattered for me to cower, mm. you know? And, and I don't blame myself. I mean, I've been learning about how men are so much more oh, impactful, yes. right? So when I started thinking about that and I started thinking about legacy, I, I started thinking about like, how do I tell, it's not, you know, it's funny, even like the word history, mm. right? It's his story. Mm. Yeah. Well, I changed it on my, um, on my Facebook thing. It's not yep. history. It's her story. Yep. It's her story. Yeah. Her, it, it really her story. Yeah. So it really is. History, so it's her that. story. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's what you're hearing. You're hearing all of her stories here yeah. on, the, on this podcast. And, right. and I want women to create their legacy intentionally. Mm. Right. And how do you do that? Right. Well, one, you have to start thinking that way. And you have to develop a legacy mindset, right? That is a real thing. What I'm saying is a real thing. You know who has that? Uh, If you look up legacy mindset, living a life of legacy, you know who's displayed? Jeff Bezos, right? Who's my husband's boss, so I can't say anything bad about him. (laughs) Um, But he's an amazing guy, actually. He actually does a a lot of great things. Um, I know that's controversial in itself, but I I really, truly, I really think he's amazing. But Jeff Bezos says, you know, he thinks of legacy. He thinks about impact. Like, his whole program that my husband works on is for his legacy. Mm. I mean, my husband is in aerospace. They're working on commercialized space flight. And it's not just because he's a rich guy that has 
like too much time on his hands and too much money, he really truly thinks it's going to make a difference in the world, mm-hmm. especially with creating more scientists um, in the future, because he knows that nobody's putting money into science unless it's entrepreneurs that the government, that's an easy budget cut, you know? Um, anyways, I could talk, that's a whole nother podcast, but, um, but, you know, he lives a legacy mindset. Um, you know, all of these entrepreneurs, some people will say like Oprah, Oprah, like if you, if you look at Oprah's mission, Oprah's mission is, um, to be a teacher. Like Mm. she wants to teach people through other people's experiences. When you look at what she does, not only the interviewing part, but like, what did she do? She opened up schools. Schools. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And she does a lot of other things that we don't even know about that's behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but here's the thing, I'm giving you examples of these uber rich people, but the true legacy impact is what each of us leave as a sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, I started becoming really intentional um, after I had all my kids, right? I had my last set of twins a couple of months before I turned 40. Um, I also had a pretty hard time at that time because my mom, she ended up um, developing breast cancer and passed away. Um, and then I turned 40. So I call it the trifecta. I mm-hmm. had my last set of twins, I was turning 40, lost my mom. And I think I started really questioning life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why am I doing all of this? What, um, you know, is this all I'm going to be all my life? Is, am, I, am I only going to be a doctor? Which sounds insane to people who are not doctors, right? But I felt like I was on cruise control. I was just going through the motions of life. Mm-hmm. I wasn't depressed. I'm not saying I was, I wasn't burnt out. I was just, just felt like I really didn't have any umph to my life, you know? And I felt like I wasn't really making an impact, even though I really was, I just wasn't really acknowledging that. And then I started kind of reading more about that or learning about legacy, learning about like, what is it that I want to leave behind? Um, and what I want is I read a quote that really spoke to me and especially as being Um, an internet, like a public figure and an influencer myself is that a true leader creates more leaders, not more followers. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what I want my legacy to be. Mm -hmm. I want to create more leaders that will make more history to be in those history books and to raise, you know, young girls that they can at least understand what the socialized pressures are. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and change and change the narrative. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so that's what I, I mean, I, I still work as a physician like part-time and I run this organization and then I do, you know, high powered coaching for women who identify with my story, really not just about infertility, but about this idea of just kind of hitting what really is mid-career crisis. Like you're like, well, what's my value? What's my purpose in life? What's my impact? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and kind of wanting to turn that boat around and, and double down on yourself because you know that you're so amazing and everything that you've done to that point is just so so important that you you've gone through that path and now it's just channeling all of that into a values based life. Um, this may seem like so like a different language than what people usually talk about, but um, but it's a process and I only got through this process and hit that point because I went through IVF and because I went through a lot of struggles uh, and at the end started realizing like why am I not happy? I should be happy by now. Mm-hmm. Well, and and going back to what you had said actually about education, and I'm curious what what you what do you think needs to change for the overwhelming need for fertility treatments to become part of every person's education, not just the person that's going through IVF, but quite frankly, everybody. Well, I think it starts from a basis of we don't really uh, have a really good way of actually teaching anybody about their body. No. I mean, how did you learn sexual health? Like probably in a classroom, right? When yeah. you're in seventh grade. But it, it, you, you learned 
um, sex education. And, you know, if if you're going to be out there, you need to be using a condom because, you know, there's all these diseases and this, that and the other. That's what you learned. There, there was nothing about reproduction. You just learned about sex and well, what or or not how not to reproduce. Yes, pretty much. Right. It's like, don't do any of these things. Right. Yes. Because. Yes. I mean, they show you all the STDs, but the real big problem is not the STDs. It's you might get pregnant, right? right. Like, that's the worst situation. Right. Right? Yeah. But I will tell you that most women don't understand their bodies because I will get patients who come in with pelvic pain. I will do an ultrasound. I will diagnose them with a cyst and they act like it's, I've given them a death sentence and it will be like a simple cyst. And I'll be like, no, you, you just have a, have a cyst. And then, you know, the mom will be there. Like, you know, these young girls sometimes bring their moms and the mom's like, oh, I've had cysts too. And I said, you know, this is what we all have. This is normal. No, it's not normal. No, this is how we actually ovulate. Like this is a normal thing. And the amount of education that I have to do to those two generations in that moment. And, and the mom is teaching the daughter. And the daughter's going to go on to teach other people, whether it's her friends or her or her mm-hmm. kids, right? And mm-hmm. so, just teaching people like what normal anatomy is, normal what what is it, um, and then and then maybe have graduated continuing education for these people of what can really affect your fertility. Because even with STDs, let's be honest, most STD most STDs, okay, are treatable. Mm-hmm. Even like AIDS, which was like a big thing when I was younger, because mm-hmm. you know I was born in the late seventies. We don't really hear a lot about HIV and AIDS anymore. It's no. kind of like, you know, because it's so well controlled, yep. you know, and there's, you know, potential curative treatments that are coming down the line that we're, we're hearing about grumblings about, you know, which is great. So a lot of people are not scared of STIs, but what they really should be scared about is how it affects your chances of fertility in the future. Mm-hmm. Like all these people with blocked tubes, with scarred tubes, like that have had chlamydia and gonorrhea over and over again, PID, like all these, like these are things that we need to be teaching our young kids is it's not just about the shame of having an STD. It's not just about the inconvenience of having an STD. It's about your fertility. But I think future planning comes from our frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. And frontal lobe is not completely mature until like the age of 25. Mm. So you're talking about teaching these 12-year-olds hmm. about future planning. They are not hearing you. But I think what they are hearing is they're very curious. They're very curious about your bot, their body, right? They want to know. They, equip them with the basis of information that they really need to understand. And if that needs to be that a doctor's in the classroom and explaining it, like so be it. Um, but I think that we need to change the conversation there. Then as we get a little bit older, we can teach them about future planning. The other thing is around the age of 18, they can start voting, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's really important for them to understand choices that each person should have over their body, Hmm. whether that's pregnancy, whether that's reproductive health. And right now it is insane to me that a pill for erection is covered, but I thank you, please. Yes, please continue on. Freaking insane. It is to me. I, I think Gloria, uh, who was it? Uh, Gloria Steinem, I, I don't know if it, I, I might be attributing this quote to the wrong person and I might be messing this up. So you might have to put the real one somewhere on your on your page somewhere. But I read this quote that I thought was brilliant. It was like, if abortion was a, sac- uh, if abortion was, um, if men could have abortions, it would be a freaking sacrament. Hmm. Something to that. And it's true. It's true. Like if, and this is not just about abortions for people listening to me. I'm talking about anything that has to do with sexual health. If a man was experiencing it, they would find a solution. Mm-hmm. Like, why are there not more medications? Let's just talk about eye for eye here. Okay. 
We have Viagra, we have Cialis. These are erectile dysfunction medications, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have testosterone replacement for men so they can continue to have their sexual health, right? Where is the research? Where are the pills? Where are the efforts to help with women's libido? They're not. No, no. They're not. No. So I think if we want to change the discussion, we have to change the narrative of how we're teaching it. Yeah. Um, from, from, from young. From young. Yeah. From yeah. Young. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's also important to realize that, you know, having men who are going through fertility, because right now we're focusing really on talking about the woman's journey, but there's a lot of male factor yes. for infertility. In fact, I think it's going to be a bigger discussion because what we're finding with COVID cases for men is that it is dropping their sperm count mm-hmm. for men who have had COVID. Mm-hmm. So not for the ones who are vaccinated and having COVID. There was a postmortem study that showed if they had COVID, they were not vaccinated, that their sperm count was like near nothing. Okay. And we know from other viral syndromes that it drops your sperm count. And we know that during pandemics, more men die as we're seeing in COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that as more men come forward, like recently, um, Hassan Minaj came forward and said that he had a varicocele and he had to get it repaired so they can actually get pregnant. And more men, and he does it in a, he says it in a joking way, but I think if more men come out and it's not a joke, it's like, mm. hey, I had a problem. Yep. I had low sperm count. I had azospermia. I had blah, 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 whatever it is that they had, right? Let's raise awareness for that. Then maybe we'll realize that it's not just a woman's journey, that it's actually a woman and man's yes. journey. It's, yes. And it's two men's journey and it's two women's journey. It's people actually having families. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about an issue that doesn't affect every single person. Mm-hmm. Because if you ask, I mean, if you, you hear the stats, right? One in eight people, really it's like one in four, especially in the professional world of women who work in professional circumstances, one in four, because they're delaying getting pregnant for so many years. But every single person knows somebody who went through IVF. Yes. yes. And if there's that many people who know it, then there yep. should be a little bit more attention to it, especially given the laws. Um, and I think what's happening is scary. Um, we're going the opposite way, especially when, we look about some of the legislation that's being passed in Texas and things like that. Yep. I think it's crazy that we can control a woman so much on what they can't do, but we cannot empower them to have children if they want to. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that conversation is a bigger conversation and probably a lot more um, uh, controversial. Yes, a, a, a conversation that um, yeah. just know we'll, you will come back on and oh, we, that is exactly what will. we will actually discuss next time. So yes, um, yes, definitely. Okay, my last question. Yeah. What parting words do you want to leave us with, to encourage and inspire women who are kind of in their own personal fertility journeys? Okay, I have... A couple of pieces. One is, and I'll be, I'll be really brief. One is don't quit unless you want to. I see a lot of people. I mean, I remember going through the journey and people going like, well, how many more are you going to go? Like, maybe it's just not in the cards for you. Maybe God doesn't want you to have kids. Uh, maybe you should adopt. Uh, maybe you, you know, whatever, all the things that they say that is wrong that probably come from really well-meaning places, but only you could decide when you want to quit. Even if a doctor is telling you, like, hey, I, I don't want to do any more cycles for you. That's fine. Maybe that's not the right clinic for you. And I think every clinic is, is brilliant. It's just that they serve different people, mm-hmm. right? So that leads to my second piece of advice. Don't be so loyal to your clinic. Mm. I don't care what they're promising you. I don't care about the, the gifts that they're going to give you. Oh, we'll give you free medication, blah, 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 whatever. What, I don't really care. This is, this is about you creating your family. My rule is, two tries, like try a new place, no hard feelings, a train, right? We're on a train. 
there's no hard feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the third one is, um, you know, if you're not seeing a therapist or a coach, please do. We focus so much on our ovaries and our uterus through this process, but we are neglecting our brain mm-hmm. and the traumatic effects of decisions that you make and feelings you suppress during infertility will last a lifetime. Mm. Like, please, please get yourself help. I personally saw a therapist for most of the time that I went through IVF. And then after I had kids, I kind of stopped seeing someone. And then recently actually started getting, I got a body image coach. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize, you know, how much I was suppressing about body image. And I mean, I was injecting hormones for how much time, right? So I have all this extra skin and fat and then, right? Like, and I, and I, and it's hard for me to remember that that skin and fat is something I created because I have five beautiful children, you guys. Mm. And, I, and I need to love my body, right? Mm-hmm. And I need to love myself, mm-hmm. right? And so I encourage you to get that help with, um, I mean, I am not a fertility coach, um, so I, I don't claim to want to be one, but, if, but, but, but talk to somebody whether, and everybody has different issues. Um, that's and that's, that's why I find this, this topic so nuanced that some of my clients, it's, it's that they can deal with the IVF part. It's just like, but it's affecting my job mm-hmm. and it's affecting how I show up for my family. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is a little bit different for these high powered women who are professional women. I love doing that, but I'm saying that whatever your situation is, if it's body image issue, weight, you know, you're gaining weight, you're, you're, you're changing your weight five, you know, so much during the process. Um, it's your energy level, your libido, your self-confidence, whatever it may be, find someone that can help you. And again, say you try someone, they're not good for you. Remember, you're on a train, no drama. Get off that, that at that station, get on the next train. It's mm-hmm. going to be totally okay. Mm-hmm. So um, that's my advice. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And obviously we'll have all of your contact information in the show notes. So, you know, people can definitely go and, and um, find you, but know that Hala actually will be back because we have another very important topic that we're going to be discussing. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for inviting me and I'll see you later. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. We would love for you to rate us. So if you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel at Family Inceptions. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.